Maybe I'm the only one that's a bit Grinch-like, but Christmas is a bit exhausting, isn't it? You know, we arrive at this point, and don't you just feel really, really tired? And there are a lot of people, I think, as Christmas draws near, that can't help but approach this time with a significant amount of exhaustion, sometimes outright dread. And it's not just the chaos of shopping centers. It's not just the energy you have to summon to pretend to like the people that you're going to be having meals with tomorrow. It's not just the heat. It's not just the mountains of waste, the paper, the plastic, the uneaten food. There are a lot of people that approach this holiday with a very deep sense, I think, of dread. For those of you who have ever had anything to do with family court, with domestic violence shelters, you would know that December is the busiest month of the year for the family court. This is the busiest month of the year for domestic violence shelters, for child protection agencies. This is the time of the year that tends to turn up so much pressure on families. It erupts in the form of violence, of tension between couples. It erupts in individuals in the form of sadness and isolation. The people that we might have lost over the course of the year are very much with us now. We live now with a sense of loss and bereavement. And all the busyness of the holiday is just enough to ratchet that up so that we really feel it. And then there's the financial pressure that so many families are going to feel. Then there's the loneliness. I'm not sure, I I, I hope that you're aware of this, but this is also a really difficult time of year for people in aged care facilities. This is the loneliest time of the year for people who are in shelters for those who have no homes. It's a very good cause, I think, for a lot of people to feel a significant amount of dread that this time of year has come around again. But then you go to the shops, and you've got the decorations, and you've got the lights, and you've got the tinsel, and you've got the Mariah Carey Christmas album on constant loop. You can't help but feel as though you're living in a different world. Out there is real pain, real isolation, real sadness. And in here, it's all like one big distraction, isn't it? It's like a sleight of hand saying, don't look over here at the reality of the world. Shop. It's like a narcotic, a great big distraction, a way of us avoiding contact with a painful reality. Now, I wish I could say that this is just the problem of a world that has become too commercialized, that has become too secularized, that has turned Christmas into a commercial and a secular holiday. I wish I could say that this wasn't a problem for Christians. But again, unfortunately, a problem out in the world tends to be amplified inside the church. This might sound very, very strange to you. After all, Isn't this also the time of the year when you'll have ministers, priests, bishops standing in podiums, preaching from pulpits that it's time to remember the reason for the season, that Christmas has become too secular, too commercialized, that it's all about Santa Claus and reindeers and tinsels and all sorts of things that are completely inappropriate when it's 33 degrees outside. And we need to remember the real reason for the season. We need to put Christ back in Christmas. Hands up, 
Those of you who have heard somebody say, we need to put Christ back in Christmas. Okay, terrific. But there's also a problem with that, you know. And the problem is, the Christ that we tend to put back in Christmas is a Christ of our own making. The Christ that we tend to imagine at Christmas time is exactly the kind of Christ that we want to see. It's a Christ that tells us what we already know, that tells us what we already want to hear. It's a Christ who is exactly our kind of God. Harmless, inoffensive, cuddly. It's God with a great big bow on top. A God who is on our side, who looks like us, who sounds like us, who's more like a genie than a God, who grants us our witches. A God who has the same enemies that we do. A God who likes the same things that we like. A God who bestows on us at this time of year a great big tick on the way that we live. You see, shopping centers have their lights and carols and ornaments. Churches have their nativity scenes. And what do nativity scenes tend to do for us? They tend to take a message that could not be more alien to the way we live, that could not be more foreign to the way we look at the world. Nativity scenes tend to take that message and boil it down to something that is entirely inoffensive, that is made after our own image, that puts us right in the middle of the entire show, right next to inoffensive, harmless baby Jesus, exactly where we belong. The purpose of nativity scenes is, it seems to me, very much like the purpose of Christmas declarations. It's a sleight of hand. Don't look over here. Don't look at what this message that we proclaim at this time of year is really saying. Look over here. Oh, isn't that sweet? But just think for a moment with me about the story that Luke, in fact, tells in his gospel. Luke is one of the most hard-nosed, unflinching of all of the gospel writers. There's very, very little sentiment or softness in him. The world that St. Luke describes is a world of power and of the powerful. Luke is very aware of the rulers that sit astride the world into which Jesus was born. He's very aware that the world into which Jesus was born is a world of power. A world where those who have wealth and privilege sit at the top of enormous mounds of money. Luke is aware that from those centers of power, like Rome, uh, power then, uh, money flows in, and then what flows out from those centers of power tend to be decrees and quite often soldiers. The money comes into the centers of power and it doesn't go back out. And so I'm not sure, maybe I'm just weird. I tend to notice these things. When you read the gospel according to Luke, just make note of the number of times that Luke lists the people who are ruling in any given time. Let me just give you a very simple example. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, in the days of King Herod of Judea. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus, that all should come and be registered. Here's my favorite, though. Luke chapter 3. Ready for this? So this is the next chapter from where we are at the moment. We're in chapter 2. 
This is beginning of chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of Icheria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, uh, sorry, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Fabulous list. It gives you all of the people who are ruling from the top to the bottom. Tiberius Caesar at the top, right through to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests where John was going into the wilderness. Luke's world is a world of power. Luke's world is a world where some people have and other people are about to drop off the edge. And it's into this world that an announcement comes. It's an announcement that's a very old announcement. This, for instance, is what the prophet Micah said. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will rule over Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The announcement that comes in this world of power is that a king will be born, but not in one of these centers of power, not from the greatest, not among the highest, but among the least. And just note with me just how little this least is. Because we focus so much on the Bible, we tend to think of Israel as the center of the world. It was not. It was at best a misbegotten, troublesome outpost on the very edges of the Roman Empire. And in the middle of this misbegotten, troublesome little outpost on the edge of the Roman Empire, there's the capital city, Jerusalem. But no, the king wasn't born there. He was born in the regions. And not any old region, but one of the smallest villages in one of the smallest regions named after one of the youngest, uh, the youngest, I beg your pardon, of Jacob's sons in Bethlehem, in this tiny village, in this tiny region, in this, in this far-flung outpost, in this tiny place, a king will be born. Hear what the angels say. I bring you good news that will be cause of great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. But also just notice that there's something kind of strange in the idea that it's in the town of David. Did you notice, for instance, that when Samuel comes to visit Jesse because he's going to anoint one of his sons to be king, he goes through all of the sons and it doesn't appear as if any of them are the one that the Lord is after. And so Jesse, uh, so Samuel asks Jesse, are these all of your sons? And Jesse says, there is the youngest, and he's out minding the sheep. Again, the youngest son of an almost anonymous family. And it's in his line that this king will be born. Who does this announcement come to? Again, in a world of power and influence, in a world of wise men and philosophers, You would expect one of them to get the news, right? 
But instead, this announcement comes to shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Um, one of the most unforgivable things that the way that we retell the Christmas story has done is it's made it kind of cute and quaint and cuddly for the shepherds to end up making their way to the side of the manger. We've turned shepherds into almost like little unsung heroes of the story, right? But you know that shepherds weren't much chop. Even when Jesse says, the youngest, I still have a youngest son, he's out minding the sheep. That's what the youngest sons do, by the way. They mind the sheep. It's not a noble task. It's the least noble task. Shepherds were hardworking, but isolated, isolating. They were poorly paid. They were serving. They were minding property owned by somebody else. The nature of their work meant that they couldn't be in homes. They had to be usually in fields. Because they couldn't abandon their sheep during the night, it meant that there was no time in their life for the other things. And by other things, I don't just mean rest and relaxation. I mean worship, obeying the law. It's no wonder that the shepherds were widely despised by the teachers of the law in Jesus' time. Shepherding was not work that you would choose. Shepherding, if you'll pardon my crassness, along with prostitution, was the work that you chose when you had no other work that you could choose. And it's to these that the message comes. In this far-flung region, in this tiny town, to the least of all the workers, the good news comes. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. There's nothing ordinary about this story. There's nothing quaint or homely or cuddly. In a world of power, the message comes to those who have precisely none. What do these shepherds do? When the angels left and had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, What was that? No. Can you believe what we just... No. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened. Let's observe the thing which the Lord has told us about. So off they hurried, and they found Joseph and Mary and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they saw him, they began to spread the word concerning him. In a time when Rome ruled the world, a king is born in Bethlehem. In an age of philosophers and priests and Pharisees, the announcement that the king has been born comes to illiterate shepherds. And the shepherds respond like perfect disciples, don't they? They hear the good news. They come and see. And then no sooner have they seen than they have gone to tell everyone they could find. Where are we in this story? Because we've turned the shepherds into hardworking, basically good-natured people, because we don't see them as being unusual in the story at all, we tend to kind of see ourselves more or less in the shepherds. You know, everyday folk 
common people, good-natured, meaning well, attracted to something that anybody would be attracted to. But what's interesting to me is that here at the beginning of Luke's gospel, there is already an echo, there's already an anticipation of another story that Jesus is soon going to tell. And I think this story maybe tells us a little bit about where we should find ourselves in this entire story. This is the story that Jesus told. A great man threw a banquet. He sent out the invitations to all of his friends. If he's a great man, what would you imagine his friends would be? Also, great people. A great man who has enough to afford a big banquet, he's probably going to send out the invitation to people who are similarly well-to-do. He sends off the invitation, come, everything is ready. But each one alike begins making excuses. The first says, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Not your banquet. Please excuse me. Another one says, I've just bought five uh, yoke of oxen. Notice each one is a rather wealthy excuse. Do you notice that? I just bought a field. I can't come. I just bought oxen, a new car. I can't come. Another one, I just got married. I can't come. The servant returns to his master. The master is incensed that everybody who you would expect to respond has turned down the invitation. So he orders his servant, go out quickly. Where? Into the streets and the alleys of the town. Bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room around your table. Then the master said to his servants, go even further out to the roads, the lanes. Compel them to come in so that my house will be full. You'll notice this is an awful lot. This is an awful lot like the story that Luke begins his gospel with. The message goes out and none can hear it. The only ones that hear it are the least, the lowest, the shepherds in their field, those who are illiterate and poor. They are the ones, they are the only ones who are not too blind to see that the light has come in to the world. The rest of those who live in the centers of power, they can't see. They don't know. Where are we in this story? We are not the shepherds. We are the ones who don't have the time. Where are we in this story? We are the ones who just purchased the field. We are the ones who just bought the oxen. We're the ones who just got married. We don't have time to turn aside and see. Who are we in this story? We are Herod. We are the chief priests. We are Caesar. One of the worst things I think that we can do at any Christmas is to make this story all about us and to locate ourselves right next to the baby Jesus as if that's what we would have done, as if that's where we belong. Instead, 
the message that arrives at us this Christmas is of a God who came into the world in a way that we would not have seen, in a way that nobody expected, in a way that most of us would have found, quite frankly, utterly preposterous. Imagine someone announcing to you, in an erected temporary form of housing, in a detention center on Nauru, a baby has been born. And that baby is the light of the world. Where are we in this story? Maybe you have slightly higher ambitions than I do. Maybe you want to be a little bit more than Herod, a little bit more than Caesar, a little bit more than the Pharisees who wouldn't have observed. Maybe you want to be a little bit more in this story, but maybe not quite as great as the shepherds who heard, who journeyed, who worshipped. Where might we be in this story? Maybe the answer isn't found in Luke's gospel, but in Matthew's. Because while in Luke's gospel, the strange first worshipers that come and arrive at the foot of the manger are the shepherds. But in Matthew's gospel, the strange first worshipers who arrive are, of course, the philosophers, the sages, the wise men who see this clue This intimation, this hint that something is happening, that they ought to go and see. We know the story, we've been hearing about it each week, of the wise men who come, who worship at Jesus' feet. Have you ever wondered what came next? Have you ever wondered what the wise men did then? After all, they didn't continue living in Israel. They didn't set up residence outside of Bethlehem. Presumably, they returned to their homelands. There was a poem written exactly 90 years ago by T.S. Eliot called The Journey of the Magi. At the conclusion of that poem, T.S. Eliot imagines these wise men returning to the places from whence they came. We return to our places these kingdoms, but we were no longer at ease. We were no longer at ease here in this old dispensation with strange people clutching their strange gods. The message at Christmas is very, very simple. Turn aside from your busyness. Turn aside from the world that you think revolves around you. Turn aside from your regular rituals of daily life, the people that you tend to hang around with most easily. Turn aside from all that is most familiar to you and comforting to you. Turn aside and come and see the strange God who has come into this world. Turn aside and see the light and the truth. Turn aside, see and see the world in a different way. For T.S. Eliot, when these wise men returned to their home kingdoms, they were no longer at ease. They were no longer comfortable in the lands of their birth with these strange people clutching their strange gods. If there is anything we learn from the shepherds, 
If there's anything we learn from the wise men this Christmas, hopefully it's that this Christmas we ought to feel very, very, very ill at ease in a world like ours. May this Christmas be the year that we come to see the world and ourselves differently and as strangers of our strange king. Amen.